The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, boys and girls, welcome to a special Saturday episode just for you. Welcome to Brutal Nation. I'm Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, Tammy Underwood. We decided to give you guys a little Saturday special edition and There's episode. a reason why we're doing it, too. Yeah, there's a reason. We missed last Friday, and yeah. we kind of feel bad about it. Yeah, because... Well, not last Friday, but the one before last. No, we... Yeah, we didn't release episode 181? 179? One of the... 180, something like that. I can't well, remember. 180, I 180. Because... Um, I was babysitting my nephew, and the car broke down, and I couldn't get over here to record it, and, you know, all that stuff, all that jazz. All right, yeah. so today we're going to do something with a fucked up name, Andre Chikatilo. And since this is releasing on April 2nd, happy April Fools, everybody, and this is not a joke. This is Scott's a joke, a joke no, no, oh, but I'm not. such an asshole. <laughs> now I'm sending your mom love letters every day. What else is new? You know, my biggest mistake was giving you her number. And uh, sending her naked pictures. Yeah. Andre Chikatilo, though. He is, I have been wanting to do this one forever. And this is kind of a lengthy one, so bear with me. Um, yeah, I've been wanting, he's, he was called the Ripper of Rostov out of the Ukraine. That sounds like a, actually a killer restaurant. Where are you going? The Ripper of Ruskov. Oh, holy fuck. Rostov. Oh, Rostov. Whatever. Yes. It sounds like an awesome restaurant. Yeah, kind of. A little bit. <coughs> you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Do so, it. Andre Chikatilo was born on October 16th, 1936 in the village of Yablukny in the Sumy Oblast of the Ukraine SSR. Holy That's fuck. That's back in the USSR. I'm just fucking, I can't even pronounce the names that you just said. So fucking. Yeah, well, that's probably the extent of what I can pronounce. No. Um, at the time of his birth, Ukraine was in the grips of famine um, because of Stalin, his forced collect- collectivization of agriculture. Um, his parents were both collective farm laborers who lived in a one-room hut, and they received no wages for their work, but instead received the right to cultivate the land. This is because in Mother Russia, you get no rights. Right? Well, they received the right to cultivate the land behind the family hut, then give most of that away. You know, they had to give most of that stuff away in their cultivation, whatever it was. Welcome to communism. Yeah. The collectivization of agriculture. That was just... Oh. Stalin just amazed me anyways, but whatever. The, the family rarely had enough to eat, obviously. He later claimed not to have eaten bread until he was 12 years old, adding that he and his family often had to eat grass and leaves in an effort to stave off hunger. Throughout his childhood, Chikatilo was repeatedly told by his mother, Anna, that before he was born, an older brother of his named Stepan had at the age of four, been kidnapped and eaten by starving neighbors. Well, I'll tell you, though. Huh? I'd hire them. They'd make excellent lawnmowers. <laughs> Although that story was never established, whether it was never established whether that incident actually occurred or if this brother even existed. Nonetheless, Chikatilo recalled his childhood as being one of poverty, ridicule, hunger, and war. In addition to the external hardships, Chikatilo is believed to have suffered from hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain, and at birth, which caused him genital urinary tract problems later in life, including bedwetting into his late adolescence and later the inability to sustain an erection, although he was able to ejaculate. So, Sort of like you with the bedwetting, though, because you're in your 40s and... You know what I drunk text you is nobody's <laughs> business, Scott. No, I'm kidding. I do not pee the bed, people. Yes, she does. Don't lose the door. Bedwetter, asshole. <laughs> Just, I bet you that our listeners still think we hate each other. We do. <laughs> I have a restraining order out on you. Please. You're no longer allowed to speak to me. Remember? Nobody can restrain me. <laughs> I know. I tried. <laughs> Okay, so when the Soviet Union entered 
the Second World War, Chikatilo's father, Roman, was conscripted into the Red Army. He would later be taken prisoner after being wounded in combat. And between 1941 and 1944, Chikatilo witnessed some of the effects of the Nazi occupation in the Ukraine, which he described as horrors, adding he witnessed bombing. You were going to say horrors, weren't you? I just was going to ask for a clarification if you meant horrors or whores. I said horror. No, you said whores. Uh, adding he witnessed bombings, fire, shootings, and from which he and his mother would hide in cellars and ditches. On one occasion, Chikatilo and his mother were forced to watch their own hut burn to the ground. With his father at war, Chikatilo and his mother shared a single bed, and he was a chronic bedwetter. Um... Which is, which is actually kind of common in serial killers, but him because of his hydrocephalitis and, you know, birth defect. And his mother berated him for each offense, okay? In 1943, his mother gave birth to a baby girl named Tatiana. Because his father had been conscripted in 1941, he could not have fathered this child. Kind of figured but that one. as many Ukrainian women were raped by German soldiers during the war, and that is well documented, it's been speculated that Tatiana was conceived as a result of a rape committed by a German soldier. Brutal. Yeah. As Chikatilo and his mother lived in a one-room hut, this rape had more than likely happened in front of him, if it did happen. So I totally see why this dude's going to be a serial killer. Dude, he is. I, I just read part of what happened, what he did in court, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Well, everything from the time he was born yeah, yeah. is programming him for violent actions, yeah. whether it be yeah, serial born killer. Yeah, in poverty serial, in the Ukraine. Yeah. Being a serial killer, serial rapist, serial thief, serial bur- It's Everything about this screams aggressive behavior oh, programming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And violence. Yeah, there's no peace in this. I see. I see no component. It's like an adapter. Com- yeah, right. I see no component of compassion Mm-mm. or empathy. Anything that would kind of maybe worse than Carl Panzram even. Fuck because yeah. Because you know the where he was raised. At you least know, Carl had like what, like a seven years of fucking yeah with a dad, with yeah. a dad and everything, where he was getting some love and nothing was happening. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus fucking Christ. All right, tell me more about Andre. So, in 1944, Chikatilo started school. He was shy and weak, but an excellent student who truly loved to learn. Oh, awesome. Yeah, he would usually show up to school in homemade clothing. Um, but then who didn't in those days back in the USSR, you know, or poverty-stricken families to begin with? I mean, I am not even going to talk about in the 80s how I went to school in handmade clothes that to this day, traumatizes me thinking about it. <laughs> Sit you know. there and wear your fucking burlap, okay? No, my mom made my sister and I matching gingham over, you know, the, like, weird things with the, like, apples and stuff, you know, the fabric. It was like a corduroy fabric, like, like black and white awesome. with the, like, apples and shit that grannies have hanging up in their kitchen windows. That's awesome. She made us matching overalls, and then her and I had paisley dresses Different colors, but the same style. And it's like, no, mom, that is so traumatizing. So traumatizing to me to this day, thinking about it. That is freaking awesome. You should be thankful for what you have. I mean, I'm glad that my mom had that skill, yes. I just wish she would pick different material to use. Okay, I'm going to give you that one, but at least she wasn't, like, getting, you know, sending you to, to, to school and, like, Totally dirty, filthy, That's tore true. up clothes. That's you true. You didn't look like a homeless person. That's true, too. Give your mom some credit. Yeah, that and the haircut she gave us is just a traumatic childhood. Did she have a floby? No, she did not. But I will tell you that um, she did not have any cosmetology skills whatsoever. She would pile all of our hair, like pull our hair up into a ponytail on top of our head and then hold her fingers there and snip across the top of her fingers and then let our hair fall and then try to even it out. And she might as well just put a bowl on her head. It'd been much better. In theory, in theory only, that kind of makes sense. In theory only. In, in theory, in theory, in, in my head. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a reprieve. Let me let me tell you a story. So Jake was like three years old, and his uh, his half brother Nathan. I would pick uh, him up and bring him to my house uh, from from Heidi, and so they both needed a haircut. So in my mind, I can give them flap tops. High and tight? 
in my mind, mm-hmm. I can do this. I have this skill. I'm, 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 I'm confident I have this skill. And when I was done, they both ended up bald because they both looked like they just stepped out of Auschwitz. <laughs> like they should be telling stories like, and that has been my mother and father. And I have the number the, 25 here. <laughs> yeah, the, see, my, see, see my tattoo. That is how they knew that I, that, that I was in the concentration camp. It was, it was, it was terrible. It was. I looked at him. Well, oh man, I am so fucking sorry. So yeah. I just shave him like really tight. Well, my to, daughter's sister has a tra- traumatized experience from when I thought I could cut hair too. And I told her she was telling me right before her wedding. She goes, "Yeah, I'm gonna go get my hair done." I said, "Oh, you want me to come cut it?" She goes, "Uh, no." And I can't go to anybody but a hairstylist now. Thanks to you. I said, "Yeah, well, that's what I do." <laughs> I actually had to call Heidi and say, "Okay, first off." Let me apologize. <laughs> Let me explain. What? I'm going to explain what happened. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's my fault, but it's my fault. <laughs> because I assumed I had a skill that I, did, I don't possess. I, in the, I now know I possess precisely negative numbers. <laughs> when it comes to that. And to anything that involves yeah. fucking hair. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you have none. <laughs> That's why I shave my head. Yeah. That's why I get waxed. I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't worry about that shit anymore. Yeah. No mo, no mo. No mo, no mo. So in ni- in September of 1944, oh, I said that already. Anyways, and he also had the swollen, hungry tummy, you know, yeah. which is common. Um, on several occasions, this hunger caused him to faint both at home and at school, and he was constantly targeted by bullies who regularly mocked him over his fickle, physical stature and timid nature. At home, Chikatilo and his sister were constantly berated by their mother. Tatiana later recalled that in spite of the hardships endured by her parents, their father was a kind man, whereas their mother was harsh and unforgiving towards them, which is very common in male serial killers who target women as well. Um, Bobby Joe Longsbaum. Hello. Chikatilo developed a passion for reading and memorizing data and often studied at home, both to increase his sense of self-worth and to compensate for his nearsightedness, which often prevented him from reading the classroom blackboard. He had a particular interest in stories that described how German prisoners were tortured by their Soviet captors during World War II. To his teachers, Chikatilo was an excellent student upon whom they would regularly bestow their praise. By his teens, he was both a model student and an ardent communist. He was appointed editor of school's newspaper at age 14 and chairman of the Pupils Communist Party Committee two years later. An avid reader of communist literature, he also delegated the task of organizing street marches. Although he claimed learning did not come easy to him due to the Due to headaches and poor memory, he was the only student from his collective farm to complete the final year of study, graduating with excellent grades in 1954. Um, At the onset of puberty, he discovered he suffered from chronic impotence, worsening his social awkwardness and self-hatred. He was shy in the company of women, and his first crush at age 17 had been on a girl named Lilia Barishiva, B-A-R-Y-S-H-E-V-A, with whom he had become acquainted through his school newspaper. Yet he was chronically nervous in her company and never asked her for a date. That same year, he jumped on an 11-year-old friend of his younger sister and wrestled her to the ground, ejaculating as the girl struggled in his grasp. This humiliation colored all future sexual experiences and cemented his association of sex with violence. Um... After he graduated, he applied for a scholarship at Moscow State University. Although he passed the entrance exam with good to excellent scores, his grades were not good enough for acceptance. Um, He speculated his scholarship application was rejected due to his father's tainted war record. Apparently, his father had been branded a traitor for being taken prisoner in 1943. But the truth was that other students had performed better in a highly competitive exam. He did not attempt to enroll at another university. Instead, he traveled to Kursk, where he worked as a laborer for three months before, in 1955, he enrolled in vocational school with the aim of becoming a communications technician. Upon completing his two-year vocational 
courses. He relocated to the Ural City Nizhny Tagil, T-A-G-I-L, to work as a long-term construction project. On a long, excuse me, on a long-term construction project. While living there, he also undertook correspondence courses in engineering with the Moscow Electrotechnical Institute of Communication, and he worked in the Urals for two years until he was drafted into the Soviet Army in 1957. Now, he performed his, compulsive milita- his compulsory military service between 57 and 60, assigned first to serve with border guards in Central Asia, then to a KGB communications unit in East Berlin. Here, his work record was unblemished, and he joined the Communist Party shortly before his military service ended in 1960. That same year, Chikatilo had his first serious relationship with a local girl two years younger than him. On three occasions, the two attempted to have sex, but every time he was unable to sustain an erection. After 18 months, she broke off the relationship, and as a result, most of his peers discovered his impotence. In 1993 interview regarding this incident, he said, girls were going behind my back, whispering that I was impotent. So I was ashamed. I was so ashamed, I tried to hang myself. My mother and some young neighbors pulled me out of the noose. Well, I thought no one would want such a shamed man, so I had to run away from there, away from my homeland. Um, in 1963, he married a woman named Theodosia Adnasheva, a 24-year-old spinster to whom he had been introduced by his younger sister. And according to Chikatilo, although he was attracted to her, his marriage was effectively an arranged one which occurred barely two weeks after they had met and in which the decisive roles were played by his sister and her husband. Um, He later claimed that his marital sex life was minimal at that Oh, and that after his wife understood he was unable to maintain an erection, um, they agreed she would conceive by him ejaculating externally and pushing his semen inside with his fingers. His How romantic, right? In 1965, she gave birth to a daughter they named Lyudmila, L-Y-U-D-M-I-L-A. Four years later, in 1969, they had a son named Yuri. In 1964, he chose to enroll as a correspondent student at Rostov University studying Russian literature and philology. What is philology? P-H-I-L-O-L-O-G-Y. What is it? Philology. I have no idea. I've never heard of that. Yeah, he got his degrees in 1970. In in May of 1973, he committed his first known sexual assault upon one of his students. In this incident, he he swam towards a 15-year-old girl and groped her breasts and genitals, ejaculating as she struggled against his grasp. Months later, he sexually assaulted and beat another teenage girl whom he had locked in his classroom. He was not disciplined for either of those incidents and or for the occasion in which fellow teachers uh, observed him fondling himself in the presence of his students. One of his duties at the school was ensuring the stu- his students who boarded on the s- at the school were present in their dormitories in the evenings. On several occasions, he is known to have entered the girls' dormitory in the hope of seeing them undressing. In other words, he was a serious creeper. In response to the increasing number of complaints lodged against him by students, the director of the school had a formal meeting with him and told him he should either resign voluntarily or be fired. He left his employment discreetly and found another job as a teacher at another school in the Novoshaktinsk, oh my God, in January 1974. The school never put this on his record, so there was no warning for any other school he might apply at. He lost his job as a result of staff cutbacks in September of 1978 before finding another teaching position at a technical school number 33 in Shakti, a coal mining town 47 miles north of Rostov. In September of 1978, he moved to Shakti, where he committed his first documented murder. On the evening of December 22nd, he lured a nine-year-old girl named Yelena Zakatnova 
with much coveted candy to an old house, which she had secretly purchased, attempted to rape her, but couldn't get an erection. When she struggled, he choked her and stabbed her three times in the stomach ejaculating while stabbing her in an interview after his 1990 arrest he later recalled that immediately after stabbing the girl she said something very hoarsely at which point he strangled her into unconsciousness before throwing her body into the nearby groshovka river and her body was found two days later now, numerous pieces of evidence linked him to that murder. Spots of blood had been found in the snow near the house he had purchased, and neighbors had noted that he had been, had been present in the house on the evening of the 22nd of December, uh, and her backpack had been found on the opposite bank of the river at the end of the street, indicating the girl had been thrown into the river at that location. A witness had also given police a detailed description of a man closely resembling, resembling Chikatilo, whom she had seen talking with the girl at a bus stop where the girl had last been seen alive. Despite that, a 25-year-old laborer named Alexander Kravchenko, who had previously served a prison sentence for the rape and murder of a teenage girl, was arrested for the crime. A search of Kravchenko's home revealed spots of blood on his wife's jumper. The blood type was determined to match the girl and the guy's wife. Um, he had a watertight alibi for that afternoon. He had been at home with his wife and a friend of hers the entire afternoon, and neighbors of the couple were able to verify this. Nonetheless, the, pol the police, having threatened his wife with being an accomplice to murder and her friend with perjury, obtained new statements in which the women claimed Krevchenko had not returned home until late in the evening on the day of the murder. Confronted with these altered testimonies, Krevchenko confessed to the killing. He was tried for the murder in 1979. At his trial, he retracted his confession and maintained his innocence, stating that his confession had been obtained under extreme duress because the KGB isn't nice at all. Despite the retraction, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. This sentence was commuted to 15 years imprisonment, which is the maximum possible length of imprisonment at the time by the Supreme Court in 1980. Under pressure from the victim's relatives, he was retried, erroneously convicted, and eventually executed by firing squad for her murder in July of 1983. Yeah. So following that murder, Chikatilo was able to achieve sexual arousal, arousal and orgasm only through stabbing and slashing women and children to death. And he later claimed that the urge to relive the experience had overwhelmed him. He did stress that initially he had struggled to resist these urges, often cutting short business trips to return home rather than face the temptation to search for a victim. Um, his career as a teacher ended in March of 1981 following several complaints of child molestation against students of both sexes. That same month, he began a job as a supply clerk for a factory based in Rostov, which produced construction materials. This job required him to travel extensively across much of the Soviet Union to either physically purchase the raw material required to fulfill the production quotas or to negotiate supply contracts. He definitely felt like this was a downgrade for someone of his intelligence and education. On September 3, 1981, he encountered 17-year-old boarding school student Larissa yeah, Tachenko, standing at a bus stop as he exited a public library in Rostov City Center. According to his subsequent confession, he lured her to a forest near the Don River with a pretext of drinking vodka and relaxing. Vodka! <laughs> when they reached a secluded area, he threw the girl to the ground before tearing off her clothes and attempting sex. As she tried to force him off of her... Okay... Attempting sex as she tried to force him off of her. When he once again failed to achieve an erection, why does he even try it, right? He forced mud inside her mouth to stifle her screams before battering and strangling her to death. Because he didn't have a knife, he mutilated the body with his teeth and a stick. He also chewed one nipple from her body with his teeth before loosely covering her body with leaves, branches, and torn pages of a newspaper. Her body was found the following day. Now... Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> okay. 13-year-old Lyubov Burek 
was murdered June 12th of 1982. She was the first victim linked to a series of murders known to investigators as the four strip killings. Nine months after the murder of Chichenko, on June 12th, 1982, he was traveling by bus to the Bagayevsky district of Rostov to buy veggies, vegetables. Having to change buses in the village of Donskoy, he decided to continue his journey on foot. Walking away from the bus station, he saw a 13-year-old girl. She was walking home from a shopping trip. The two walked together for a walk, approximately a quarter of a mile until their path was shielded from the view of potential witnesses by bushes, where he pounced on her, dragged her into nearby undergrowth, tore off her dress, and killed her by stabbing and slashing her to death as he imitated performing intercourse. When her body was found on the June 27th, the medical examiner discovered evidence of 22 knife wounds inflected to her head, neck, chest, and pelvic region. Further wounds found on the skull suggested he had a, the killer had attacked her from behind with the handle of the blade of his knife. In addition, several striations were discovered upon her eye sockets. Uh, yeah. Following her murder, he no longer attempted to resist his homicidal urges. Between July and September 1982, he killed five more victims between the ages of 9 and 18. He established a pattern of approaching children, runaways, and young vagrants at bus or railway stations, enticed them to nearby forest or other secluded areas, and killed them, usually by stabbing, slashing, and eviscerating the victim with a knife. Although some victims, in addition to receiving a multitude multitude of knife wounds were also strangled or battered to death. Many of the victims' bodies had evidence of mutilation to the eye sockets, and pathologists concluded these injuries had been caused by a knife, leading investigators to, to the conclusion the killer had gouged out the eyes of his victims. Um, his adult female victims were often prostitutes or homeless women whom he would lure to secluded areas with promises of alcohol or money. He would typically attempt intercourse with those victims, but he would usually be unable to achieve or maintain his erections. So this would send him into a murderous fury, and particularly if the women mocked his impotence. Then he would achieve orgasm only when he stabbed and slashed the victim to death. His, chi his child and adolescent victims were both sexes, and he would lure them to secluded areas using ruses, uh, a variety of ruses usually formed in the initial conversations with the victim, such as promising them assistance or company or offering to show them a shortcut, a chance to view rare stamps, films, coins, or with an offer of food or candy. He would usually overpower them once they were alone, often tying their hands behind their backs with a length of rope before stuffing mud and leaves into their mouths to silence them. And then he'd proceed to kill them. After the killing, he would make little effort to conceal the body before leaving the crime scene. So he wasn't even trying to cover his tracks. What an asshole, man. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. He's just brutal. He knew that he couldn't get an erection from an early age. Right. And then he's disappointed because he can't get an erection when he's trying to fuck somebody. Right. It's kind of like, it's a given. It's a given. Yeah. Dude, you freaking knew. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm surprised, you know. Right. It's a mystery. Right. Yeah. So on December 11th, 1982, Chikatilo encountered a 10-year-old girl named Olga Stalmachenok riding a bus to her parents' home in Novoshastink, Nova I can't even pronounce it, and persuaded her to leave the bus with him. She was last seen by a fellow passenger who reported that a middle-aged man had led the girl away firmly by the hand. He lured her to a cornfield on the outskirts of the city, stabbed her in excess of 50 times around the head and body, ripped open her, ripped open her chest, and excised her lower, bo lower bowel and uterus. Jesus Not fucking Christ. Girl. Yeah. Okay, you know what? I had this guy's back because of his background. Yeah. No fucking excuse. No, no. I'm, None. I, I quit having his back. Ugh. I saw no. the pictures of his crimes. It's Andre, you can fuck yourself, too. Yeah. Like, seriously, no. I try to get people, like, you know, well, like, I do a lot. You know, kind of the benefit of the doubt. Like, hey, man, this is his background. This is, this is why this is happening. Ten-year-old girl, dude, yeah, no excuse. No. Fuck yourself. No. I hope, you, I hope you died in a gulag being ass-raped and fucking mutilated yourself. Yeah. So, by January 1983, four victims thus far killed had been tentatively linked to the same killer. A Moscow police team... Headed by Major Mikhail 
Fedosov was sent to Rostov-on-Don to direct the investigation, which gradually became known among investigators as Operation Forest Path. Fedosov established a team of 10 investigators based in Rostov charged with solving all four cases. In March, the, in, this detective assigned a newly appointed specialist forensic analyst, Victor Burakov, to head the investigation. The following month, um, that 10-year-old girl's body was found, and Burakov was summoned to the crime scene where he examined numerous knife wounds and eviscerations conducted upon the child and the stri- striations on her eye sockets. He later stated that as he noted the striations upon her eye sockets, any doubts about the presence of a serial killer evaporated. He did not kill again until June of 1983 when he murdered a 15-year-old Armenian girl named Laura Sarkisyan. Her body was found close to an unmarked railway platform near Shakti. By September, he had killed a further five victims. So... Killed somebody in January of 1983, waited till June, and then by September, he had killed five more. You're a busy boy, man. <laughs> yeah. The accumulation of bodies found and the similarities between the pattern of wounds inflicted on the victims forced the Soviet authorities to acknowledge that a serial killer was on the loose. On September 6, 1983, the public <laughs> prosecutor of the Soviet Union formally linked six of the murders thus far attributed to the same killer. Due to the sheer savagery of the murders and the precision of the eviscerations upon the victims' bodies, police theorized that the killings had been conducted by either a group of harvesting or a group harvesting organs to sell for transplant, the work of a cult, or a mentally ill individual. Much of the police effort concentrated upon the theory that the killer must be mentally ill, homosexual, or a pedophile. And the alibis of all individuals who had either spent time in psychiatric wards or had been convicted of both homosexuality or pedophilia were checked and logged in a card filing system. Why do they always do that, though? Like, seriously, there's nothing that says homosexual in that. Nothing. And yet, what do they do? They pick on the gays. They're, it must be a homosexual. The evil homosexuals. Fucking ridiculous, man. Well, isn't it still illegal to be homosexual in Russia? I don't know. Oh. I'm not gay and I'm not in Russia, so. Well, I don't, well, I don't know if you knew that or not. I mean, because I had heard it recently, but I don't know how recent. It could have been within the last five, ten years. I'll have to Google that shit yeah. later. Um, but, but, but. Registered sex offenders were also investigated, and if their alibi was corroborated, eliminated from the inquiry. It was just beyond the KGB that any good standing member of the Communist Party could do such a thing. Had they not solely focused on the undesirable, several of the murders probably would never have happened. Um, Beginning in September of 1983, several young men confessed to the murders. Although these individuals were often intellectually disabled youths who admitted to the crimes only under prolonged and often brutal interrogation. Welcome to the KGB and the former USSR. Three known homosexuals and a convicted sex offender committed suicide as a result of the investigator's heavy-handed tactics. As a result of the investigation, more than 1,000 unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 140 aggravated assaults, and 245 rapes were solved. Whoa, Gina. Whoa. Okay, so we're going to take a break here. We're going to... Please, let's break for a word from my researcher. I want to take a moment to talk about the KGB's, in quote, interrogation tactics. Brutal is an understatement. The most common methods of torture were beating, electric shock used on legs, feet, arms, necks, mouths, ears, and genitals, suffocation with water or plastic bags, positional tortures, traumatic removal of body parts such as fingernails and teeth, deprivation of food, water, sleep, and toilet, as well as sexual violence. The practice of, quote, monk executions when the detainees were threatened to be killed with various weapons were also used to force confessions. The tortures were controlled by doctors to maximize the pain without causing death. A person would admit to anything just to make that pain stop. Oh, totally, man. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're all freaking, you know, military trained and can withstand all that crap. So... However, the police obtained confessions from suspects. Bodies continued to be discovered, proving that the suspects who had confessed could not be the killer they were seeking. On October 30th of 1983, the eviscerated body of a 19-year-old prostitute, Vera Shevkin, was found in 
that town, Shakati, and she was killed on October 27th. And although the mutilations inflicted upon her body were otherwise characteristic of those found upon other victims linked to the unknown murderer, the victim's eyes had not been gouged out or otherwise wounded. Two months later, on December 27th, oh yeah, December 27th, a 14-year-old Gukovo schoolboy, Sergei Markov, was lured off a train and murdered on a rural station near Nova Cherkask. And Markov had his genitals removed and suffered over 70 knife wounds to his neck and upper torso before being eviscerated. That's fucked up. By the way, I love the Russian name Sergei. Oh, yeah. I, I've always loved that, man. Well, it sounds so masculine. It is. It sounds like intimidating, just the name Sergei. Like, seriously, man, if somebody called me up and said, Scott, you better do this, or Sergei's going to come get you, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. Yeah, whatever you want, man. Don't send Sergei. Yeah. That scares the shit out of me. One of our dry ice delivery guys, his name was Sergei. He was nice, though. So nice. We have no word for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've met some Russians that at first look really intimidating. Oh, yeah. They can be very intimidating looking. Here's a story. I just started working where I'm working, right? And I'm in uh, Roseburg, and I'm backing in, and I tap a truck next to me with a sleeper on it. And I pull forward, and the biggest fucking Russian I've ever seen in my life gets out. And I'm like, that's it. This is how I died. This fucker's going to kill me. So I get back in, and I go, dude, it was me. I'm sorry. And he looks at it. He goes, let me look. And he looks. He goes, he's old truck. It's small scratch. You just scared me so bad because I was sleeping. I went, thank God. Because <laughs> you scared me so bad when you got out. <laughs> uh, that, that's exactly what I said. Because honestly, I saw you unfold your fucking, I don't know. He had to be 100 feet tall. He was big. <laughs> Six you know, foot 12. Out of, out of your truck. And I thought for sure you were going to beat my butt. And he goes, no, he's old truck. You just, you scared me really bad. I was sleeping. I'm like, God damn. Like, Thank you. He's no problem. He's no problem. <laughs> really nice guy. Like, yeah. Thank you. Big, mean looking. Like, and I don't intimidate that right. easily. But this dude, when I say big, he was not fat. He had to be at least 6'3 to 6'5-ish and built. He, this guy looks like he lifted up Volkswagens for fun. He probably did. Big dude, man. Hella nice. Really yeah. nice guy. He's okay. He's old rock. Yeah. I, you know, of all the, you know, because uh, when I worked at the um, nursing facility way back when, I worked in the kitchen and all of the cooks were Russian women and they were some big, burly women and oh, they yeah. are intimidating looking too. But everybody, every Russian descent I have met, somebody of Russian background, has been so nice. There's a story so about nice. Jake. So Jake was like five, and I took him trick-or-treating at the mall over at Vancouver Mall. So he gets to playing with this kid, and I can tell that he's there with his grandma. His grandma is Russian, very Russian. Very. Doesn't speak English or anything like that. And Jake fell. Oh. And uh, the, the, and it, it, was just, it was an accident from the, other, from the Russian kid. And uh, the grandma said something in Russian, and this kid was really polite. So he goes, sir, I am so sorry. It was a total accident. I didn't mean for this to help. Happened, got Jacob, fucking, you know, made sure everything was cool, and they kept playing really fucking well behaved, oh, man. Oh, yeah. That's a tip for some of the parents listening out there, man. Russianize your fucking kids. <laughs> Russianize them. Because <laughs> most of you have kids that are little fucking Kirk yeah. time and crotch goblins. Right. And I also do want to point out that during all this time was still during the Cold War. You know. It's so cold. Yeah, <laughs> because it was like, you know, the USSR and everything. So it was right. before, you know. Right, right. Okay. I know you would know that, but I wanted to point it out to everybody else. Let's see here. Where was I? Oh, in January and February 1984, Chikatilo killed two women in Rosef Park of Aviators. On March 24th, he lured a 10-year-old boy, Dmitry Kashnikov, away from a stamp kiosk in that one town. While walking with the boy, he was seen by several witnesses who were able to give investigators a detailed description of him. When the boy's body was found three days later, police also found a footprint of the killer in both semen and saliva samples on the victim's clothing. On May 25th... Wait a minute. Did he try to disguise that uh, semen inside of a salad? 
It doesn't say. I'm still stuck on that. I know. You're going to be for a while. I had a freaking salad there. (laughs) Just last week, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah. Fucking stuck on that. Jesus Christ, I'm so grossed out. Just be glad that you had you were there before the salad incident. Okay. The yeah. salad incident of 2022. <laughs> and I was really nice to the wait. I'm pretty sure I was great yeah, to the we waitstrap. Were, our waitress was really staff. sweet. And the dude, the, the the kid who brought the drinks and even though he messed up your tea that one time. And I didn't bitch. I didn't bitch. You didn't. I just handed it over to John, our you tech did, guy. Yeah. You know, he said, I'll drink that. Like, Fuck, yeah, have at it, man. I can't. It's, it's got sugar in it. I can't. Yeah, I'm you diabetic. can't do sweet tea. Yeah, I wish I could have loved sweet tea. I love Southern sweet tea. But, you know, diabetics, I can't can't drink that shit. Let's see here. Okay, on May 25th, he killed a young woman named Tatiana Petroitian and her 10-year-old daughter, Svetlana, in a wooded area outside of the city. That is actually a very hot name, too. What, Svetlana? Svetlana. Yeah, but she was only 10. No, I realize she's only 10, but I can... When she got older, I bet she was hot. And Okay, let me rephrase that. A grown woman with that name, with that name, yes. Svetlana, and if they have that Russian accent, oh my God, they could literally pee on me. I'd be, I'd be cool with that. That's it's fucking this. That's that 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 just oozes sexiness. Yeah, it kind of does. Um, two for the price of one, I guess. So Patricia had known Chikatilo for several years prior to her murder. By the end of July, he had killed three additional young women between the ages of 19 and 21 and a 13-year-old boy. In the summer of 1984, he was fired from his job as a supply clerk for the theft of two rolls of linoleum. The accusation had been filed against him the previous February, and he had been asked to resign quietly, but had refused to do so, So, as he had denied the charges. Chikatilo found another job as a supply clerk in Rostov on August 1st. On August, on August 2nd, hey, day after he started his new job, he killed a 16-year-old girl named Natalia Golosovskaya in the Park of Aviators. On, on August 7th, he lured a 17-year-old girl named Lyudmila Alexeyeva. To the- See, that's not a sexy name. Yeah. That is that, that's the opposite. L-Y-U-D-M-I-L-A. To the banks of the Don River on the pretense of showing her a shortcut to a bus terminal. Did he sing her Delta Dawn by Tanya Tucker? Was that flower you got on? I don't know. Have on. Could it be a faded rose from days gone by? Come on, sing with me. I dare Did you. Did I hear you say he was meeting you here today to take you to his mansion in the sky? I love her. She's 41 and her daddy still calls her baby. I like Tanya Tucker's voice. I do voice. too. I love her voice. I'm not much on very many female singers, but Tanya Tucker's voice. Her voice has just got that raspy sound that's, I love it. It's just she can right. sing me to sleep any day. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Let's see here. Where was I? She can do anything she wants to me too. Yeah, well, to be honest. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say the same thing, yeah. Um, let's see. Now, Alex Sheva suffered 39 slash wounds to her body before he mutilated and disemboweled her, intentionally inflicting wounds he knew would not be immediately fatal. Her body was found the following morning and her excised upper lip inside her mouth. The fuck? Yeah. He's just getting more and more. And you wanted to do this? I did. I did. Yeah. Fucking hey! All right, continue on there, Captain. Only because of the brutality, and you know what I mean. So, um, hours after her murder, Chikatila flew back to Uzbek, capital of Tashkent, on a business trip. By the time he returned to Rostov on August fifteenth, he had killed an unidentified young woman and her ten-year-old girl, Akmaral. I am not even going to try to say say Deligeva. Within two weeks, the nude body of an 11-year-old boy named Alexander Sheppel was discovered on the banks of the Don River, strangled and castrated, with his eyes gouged out. Just yards from where Alex Yeva's body had earlier been found, and on September 6, Chikatilo killed a young librarian, 24-year-old Irina Luchin- 
Luchinskaya in the Park of Aviators. Now, on September 13th of 1984, he was observed by two undercover detectives attempting to talk to a young woman at a Rostov bus station. The detectives followed him as he wandered through the city, trying to approach women and committing acts of fraucherism in public places. Now, this is the act of touching or rubbing one's genitals up against a non-consenting person in a consensual man in a sexual manner. If it, <sighs> Great, if, I'm gonna get arrested. <laughs> I'm sure anyone who has ridden the subway has been privy to this behavior. Amen. I hate I hate <laughs> public transportation, anyways. But if it's crowded, oh my god, I really hate it. I won't do public transportation unless I absolutely have to. Like, I will call a car service. Mm-hmm. And if they're all booked up, like, no, we can't come pick you up or a taxi or an, an Uber even. But I'm not much on taxis or Ubers. Um, yeah, I'd rather walk. Yeah. Um, no. I've been on New York fucking transportation and in subways. No, I'd rather walk. Well, used to be any time we went to a sporting event or a concert at the uh, Moda Center. We would always take the max there. Well, it got to a point where I was so stressed out being around so many people getting on and off the max if, during after those events. That's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll pay for parking. I don't give a shit. Oh, hell yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, you walk away from it going. Dude, I stink. Does, does, does my arm smell like dirty vagina? Is that what? And this one I smells like a ball sack. I Yeah. This one smells like a dirty ball sack and it doesn't even smell like mine. That's not right. That smelled three or four different nut sacks on here. How would your shoulders smell like your nut sack? <laughs> you are not that flexible, Scott. There's a snail trail down my back. That's not right. That's not right at all. I'm getting disgusted. Then you get so grossed out when you call car service. Look, I'll take a uh, a Lincoln to pick me up, and can you make that no snail trail? I'm sorry, Mr. Alexander. What was that? Nothing. Nothing. Just said the car. The fucking car. <laughs> That's right. So, um, let's see. Upon his arrival at the city's central market, he was arrested and held. A search of his belongings revealed a knife with a 7.9-inch blade, several lengths of rope, and a jar of Vaseline. (laughs) Jake! (laughs) Sorry, that was That's my son, I know, that was so bad. I was like, hey, Jake, is this your backpack? (laughs) He was also discovered to be under investigation for minor theft at one of his former employees, which gave the investigators the legal right to hold him for a prolonged period of time. His dubious background was uncovered and his physical description matched the description of the man seen walking alongside Dimitri prior to the boy's murder. A sample of his blood was taken, and the result of which revealed his blood group to be type A, whereas semen samples found upon a total of six victims murdered by the unknown killer throughout the spring and summer of 84 had been classified by medical examiners to actually be type AB. So his name was added to the card index file used by investigators. However, the results of his blood type analysis largely discounted him as being the unknown killer. He was found guilty of theft of property from his previous employer, and his membership of the Communist Party was revoked, and he was sentenced to one year in prison. He was released from custody on December 12th of 1984 after serving three months. On October 8th of 1984, the head of the Russian Public Prosecutor's Office formally linked 23 of his murders into one case and dropped all charges against the mentally handicapped youths who had previously confessed. Okay. I'm telling you. Upon his release from prison in 1984, he found new work at a locomotive factory, locomotive factory, and he in this Nova Cherkask and kept a low profile. He did not kill again until August 1st of 1985, almost a year. Um, on a business trip to Moscow, he encountered an eight-year-old woman named Natalia Poklistova. Standing on a railway platform near Domodedovo Airport. Oh my God. I'm telling you, these Russian names are, they are hard. That's why I try to avoid the Russians personally. (laughs) She was lured off the train into a thicket of wood close to the village of Vostrakov, where she was bound, stabbed 38 times in her neck and chest, and strangled to death. 
Based upon the hypothesis that the killer had traveled from Rostov to Moscow via air, investigators checked all air the flight records of passengers had commuted between uh, Moscow and Rostov region between late July and early August. On this occasion, however, Chikatilo had traveled to Moscow by train, and accordingly, no documentation existed for investigators to research. Four weeks later, on August 27th, he killed another young woman, Irina Gulieva, in the Shakati, in Shakati, and as as had been the case with Poklastova, the wounds inflicted upon the victim linked her murder to the hunt for the serial killer. I'm really curious as to why these women and children were so gullible. After hearing about these murders for years, you'd think people would take the whole stranger danger thing to heart. <laughs> you would think, but then we've seen it here. You know? I do. I'm afraid of strangers. I could get child abducted. What? Nothing. I'll be nice. I was going to say, with your mentality, Scott, you would be worried about that. I hate you. <laughs> I know. In November 1985, a special procurator, Issa Kostayev, was appointed to supervise the investigation, which had by this stage expanded to include 15 procurators and 29 detectives assigned to work exclusively on this manhunt. Uh, now, procurators are people who represent others in a court of law in countries retaining Roman civil law, basically lawyers. Um, the known murders linked to the manhunt were carefully reinvestigated and police began another round of questioning of known sex offenders and homosexuals. The following month, the, the militia resumed the patrolling of railway stations around Rostov and plain-clothed female officers were ordered to loiter around bus and train stations. At the request of Bur- Burakov, police also took the step of consulting a psychiatrist, Dr. Alexander Bakanovsky, the first such consultation in the serial killer investigation in the Soviet Union. All crime scene and medical examiner's reports were made available to him upon the understanding he would produce a psychological profile of an unknown murderer for investigators. Now, 65, there was a 65-page psychological profile described the killer as a reclusive, 65 pages, as a reclusive man aged 45 to 50 years old who had endured a painful and isolated childhood and who was incapable of flirting or courtship with women. This individual is well-educated, likely to be married and have fathered children, but also a sadist who suffered from impotence and could achieve sexual arousal only by seeing his victims suffer. The murders themselves were an analog to the sexual intercourse this individual is incapable of performing, and his knife became a substitute for a penis which failed to function normally. Because many of the killings had occurred on weekdays near mass transport hubs and across the entire Rostov Oblast, this guy also argued that the killer's work required him to travel regularly, and based upon the actual days of the week when the killings had occurred, the killer most likely tied to a production schedule. Um, he, Chikatilo followed the investigation carefully. Um, reading newspaper reports about the manhunt for the killer, which had begun to appear in the press, and keeping his homicidal urges under control. I think I locked it because she was arguing with that dog. I bet he had never felt so so seen in his whole life. For almost a year following August 1985 murder of Gulieva, no other victims were found in either the Rostov or Moscow Oblast, whose bodies bore the signature mutilations of an unknown murderer. Investigators did tentatively link the murder of a 33-year-old woman named Lyubov Golovaka, found stabbed to death in the something district of Rosov in July of 1986 to the investigation. Although this was solely based upon the basis that the killer's semen type matched that of the killer they were seeking, that the victim had been stripped naked prior to her murder and that she had been stabbed in excess of 20 times. The victim had not been dismembered or otherwise mutilated, nor had she been seen near mass transport. Because of these discrepancies, many investigators expressed serious doubts as to whether it should be linked or not. Now, in 1987, he killed three times. Um, One was um, a 12-year-old boy. I'm trying to, like, ball these down. One was a 12-year-old boy, two 12-year-old boys, and a 16-year-old vocational student. 
Um, then in 1988, he killed three times. Um, one was a woman and then two boys in May and July. And then um, he did not kill again until February 28th of 1989 when he killed a 16-year-old girl um, in his daughter's vacant apartment. He dismembered her body and hid the remains in a sewer. And as the victim had been dismembered, police did not link her murder to the investigations. With the resurfacing of victims, um, uh, they assigned numerous plainclothes officers to discreetly film and photograph passengers on trains. Several trains were also fitted with hidden cameras. Um, And on July 14, 1990, he encountered 11-year-old Andre Krevchenko standing outside a theater. And he was lured from the theater on the pretext of being shown important Western films he claimed to have at his residence. He extensively stabbed, emasculated, he extensively stabbed and emasculated body was found in a secluded section of a wooded woodland the following month, seven weeks after his murder on March 7th. Uh, Chicka Taylor lured a 10 year old boy from a Rostov train station um, to the botanical gardens where he eviscerated him and his body was found the following day. Now, the manhunt is closing in. Uh, the intensity of the manhunt in the years up to 1984 had receded to a degree, and now it was ramping up again. Um, however, by March of 1990, six more victims had been linked to the killer, and um, the Soviet news media had much less repressed than it had been in early years of the manhunt as much as the devoted extensive pub- publicity to the case. He also noted laxity in some areas of the investigation warned that people would be fired if the killer had, was not caught soon. Um, and by August of 1990, Chikatilo killed three more victims. One was a th- 31-year-old woman. Um, another one was a 30, 13-year-old boy and another 11-year-old boy. Um, the discovery of more victims sparked a massive police operation. And then by... Um, October 30th, the police found the body of a 16-year-old boy, uh, and the wounds upon his body immediately linked his murder to the manhunt. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Uh, Oh, and then there was another 16-year-old boy named Victor Tyshenko, um, at a Kripik. station, um, which is another station that was under surveillance from from undercover police and killed him in a nearby forest. His his body bared 49 separate stab wounds, was found on November 3rd. Um, On November 6th of 1990, he killed and mutilated a 22-year-old woman. And then, um, let's see here, hang on. Then on November 13th, Wow. Another body was found. She was the third. She was the 38th victim linked to this manhunt. And they, the police summoned the officer in charge of surveillance at Donlace Coast Station and examined the reports of all men stopped in question the previous week. Not only was Chikatilo's name among those reports, but it was familiar to several officers involved in the case because he had been questioned back in 1984. And it had been placed on a 1987 suspect list compiled and distributed throughout the Soviet Union. Um, after checking with his previous and current employers, they were able to place him in various towns and cities at times when murders occurred. And they placed him under surveillance on November 14th in several instances, particularly on trains and buses. He was observed approaching young women who were alone or children and engaging them in conversation. If the woman or child broke off the conversation, he would wait a few minutes and then seek another one. On November 20th, after six days of surveillance, he left his house with a large jar, which he had filled with beer at a small kiosk before he wandered around town, attempting to make contact with children. Uh, Then he was exiting a cafe and he was arrested by four officers. When he was arrested, he gave a statement claiming the police were mistaken and complained that he had also been arrested in 84. And a strip search of the suspect revealed a further piece of evidence. One of his fingers had a deep flesh wound. He had self-treated with iodine. Medical examiners concluded the wound was from a human bite. I'd like to be strip searched. 
That'd be hot. His last victim, <laughs> Victor, was a physically strong kid. And at the crime scene, the police had found numerous signs of ferocious physical struggle between the victim and his murderer, although the finger bone was later found to be broken and his fingernail had been bitten off. Chikatilo had never sought medical treatment. Um, yeah, so after... On November 21st, after the results of his blood test again showed his blood type to be type A and not AB, due to the amount of physical and circumstantial evidence they had thus far, he they indicted him uh, with, was indicted as indeed the murder they had been pursuing, plus the fact that investigators had deduced the blood type of the murder they had pursued opposed to actual blood samples. Investigators got a sample of Chikatilo's semen to test his blood type the results of which confirmed that he was type AB, although his blood and saliva were type A. I wonder how they got the sample from him. You're so bad. During all of his interrogations, he kept saying that he was innocent, obviously. Um, Now, on November 29th, at the request of the investigators, the, the psychologist was invited to assist in the questioning of the suspect, and... He read extracts from a 65-page psychological profile to Chikatilo. Within two hours, Chikatilo burst into tears and confessed that he was indeed guilty of the crimes for which he had been arrested. Um, Now, um, let's see. I'm going to quote him here. He says, I noticed that a girl, 12 or 13, was coming behind me carrying some kind of bag in her hand. I slowed down, let her catch up to me. We walked together. Wow. I started talking to her about whatever I thought might interest her. I remember she said she was going home from the store, and I pushed her off the road and grabbed her by the waist, dragged her into the woods. I pushed her to the ground, tore off her clothes, and laying on her. At the same time, I was stabbing her, imitating sex. This was his confession to a 1982 murder. God damn. Yeah. Oh, let's That's see. kind of weird. I'm uh, flipping through my Facebook, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the... Uh, Pages I belong to actually has one on Russian serial killer Andre Chikatilo. Yeah, fifty-two murders. Yeah, let's see here. Now, this is crazy. I mean, I'm going to briefly get into his trial here. His trial was the first major media event of post-Soviet Russia. Shortly after his psychiatric evaluation, uh, investigators had conducted a press conference in which a full list of his crimes was released to the press. Um, now. On the first day of his trial, he entered an iron cage specifically constructed in a corner of the courtroom to protect him from the attack from attack from any enraged or hysterical relatives of his victims. In the opening weeks of his trial, the Russian press regularly published exaggerated and often sensationalistic headlines about the murders, referring to him as a cannibal or a maniac and to his physically resembling a shaven skull demonic individual. Have you, if you've seen pictures of him, he does look a I little know, I just, wackadoo. I, I, I saw a picture of him when I was scrolling through. Yeah, and he looks crazy. Jesus Christ. Yeah, they were, the first two days were devoted to the judge reading a long list of indictments. And then after reading the indictment, he announced to journalists present in the courtroom his intention to conduct an open trial, stating, let this trial at least teach us something so that this will never happen anytime or anywhere again. Um, he then asked Chikatilo to stand, identify himself, provide his date and location of birth. Chikatilo complied, although this would prove to be one of the few civil exchanges between the judge and him. Um, he was questioned in detail about each charge in the indictment. Uh, responding to specific questions regarding the m- murders, he often gave dismissive replies. Um, let's see. Let's see. He would become indignant only when accused of stealing personal possessions from the victims or to his retaining organs excised from the victims missing from the crime scenes. On one occasion, when asked as to his seeming indifference as to the lifestyle and gender of those whom he killed, Chikotilla replied, I did not need to look for them. Every step I took, they were there. In what became a regular, though not continuous, occurrence throughout the trial, the judge berated him as he questioned him in detail as to the charges, ordering him to shut your mouth before adding, you're not crazy. As Chikatilo's responses to questions deviated into his discussing issues such as the repression his family had endured throughout his childhood and his claiming that the charges filed against him were false. 
these verbal decisions would occur whether he, had, he was cooperative or uncooperative throughout proceedings. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Let's see. Um, in the instances in which Chikatilo was uncooperative throughout questioning, he would simply shout over the judge, denounce the court as a farce, and launch into rambling, disjointed speeches. On occasion, he would also expose himself to the court or sing socialist movement anthems throughout proceedings. These antics regularly resulted in his being returned to his cell as court proceedings continued in his absence. Um, on the 21st, his defense lawyer requested that the doctor be allowed to testify as to the contents of the 1985 psychological profile. And um, let's see. Ow. I'm going to say, I mean, he was eventually found guilty, you know, obviously, but there was one time when he stripped his clothes off in court and swung his limp penis around saying, this doesn't even get hard. What is, and it was just like, I was like, oh my God, this guy is psycho. I think he was trying for a psych defense. Can I do that in our readings? Please God, no. <laughs> then it gets hard to go, oh, my bad. I'll sit down. <laughs> yeah, no. No, not at all. So he was, um, let's see, on October 15th, he formally sentenced, the judge formally sentenced Chikatilo to death plus 86 years for the 52 murders and five counts of sexual assault for which he had been found guilty. Uh, when this happened, he kicked his bench across his cage and he heard the verdict and began shouting obscenities. However, when given an opportunity to make a speech in response to the verdict, he remained silent. Upon passing final sentence, the judge made the following remark. Taking into consideration the horrible misdeeds of which he is guilty, this court has no alternative but to impose the only sentence that he deserves. I therefore sentence him to death. He was taken to the, from the courtroom to his cell at prison to await execution. He did lodge an appeal against his conviction, but his appeal was rejected in 1993. Following the rejection of his appeal to the Supreme Court, Chikatilo filed a final appeal for clemency with President Boris Yeltsin, and this final appeal was rejected in, on January 4, 1994, and on February 14th, oh... Happy Valentine's Day. He was taken from his cell, from his death row cell to a soundproof room in the prison and executed with a single gunshot behind the right ear. He was buried in an unmarked grave at the prison cemetery and the rip, ripper of Rostov would never kill again. Happy Valentine's Day, bitch. I know. My bloody Valentine. But <laughs> no, I was just, I think I was so like enthralled by it because of everything that he got away with. No shit, man. You Fuck. know, and it's like he was questioned and like all this shit. And it was like, eh, you know, so, but yeah, I could have gone on for another hour. I skipped a bunch, but I was just I'll enthralled. The I was totally enthralled by the fucking story. I know, so me too. Over here staying quiet and fucking just listening. Yeah. And all those names. I'm not even going to try again. But yeah, they, um, after they finally, finally caught him and his antics in court. Oh my God. God, just rival anybody I'd ever heard of before. So, all right. Remember, you can send us an email at brutalnation at twistedbluellc.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs, type in at brutalnation. We'll pop right up. Check out our website at www.twistedbluellc.com and check out our Patreon page. Help a brother out. This show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved, and we'll catch you guys on Monday. Bye. Bye, everybody.